So I'm Francesca Maxime. I am in right now uh, what's now known as the state of Massachusetts in the United States of America. It's also known as Nipmuc territory uh, here. And when I look out the window right now, I see my wind chimes and a bird feeder, which if it weren't dark out at 6.14 p.m. Eastern time right now on January 26th, which it is, I would probably see the flurry of cardinals, blue jays, and, and you know woodpeckers and things that are usually there uh, most of the day, which I enjoy thoroughly. So um, yeah. I love it. So let's, let's back up because we, um, the podcast that I'm gonna release this week which will be next week for people that listen to this one. We talked briefly about this idea because she was from New York and she talked about how it was actually such and such land, which I'm not gonna remember what she said. And you just said that about Massachusetts. So tell me what you mean by that. Sure. Um, actually, I live in New York. I'm just staying here at my mother's house for a little while uh, during the COVID, I call it the COVID shuffle. Um, and, uh, you know, I live on Canarsie land and Lenape land in New York. And what I mean by that is, is that there are hundreds of uh, indigenous nations and, and that are still in existence that <clears throat> occupied, lived on, sustained, cared, took of the land known as Turtle Island, which has become North America, which has become the United States of America through settler colonialism and through the system that we now know as, quote unquote, the founding of the United States. So when I say that I'm on Nipmuc land here in Massachusetts or Canarsie or in Lenape land, I mean the land that the indigenous folks to this territory, to this land, have been farming, living on, uh, cultivating, and are part of and who are the first nations people uh, of that land, not us, not me, not my mother as a homeowner in this case. Land was not a commodity. Land was part of all my relations and is part of all my relations to be perfectly honest in much the same way that uh, you know, we think of people and maybe sometimes pets in our current society, uh, but we don't often think of trees and, and, and you know, different things like that. Uh, but in fact, that is the cosmology, that is the, the cultural um, positioning of, uh, of many other cultures, including the one that we essentially enacted genocide on um, and attempted to eradicate so that colonists could settle and uh, turn land into a commodity, which is what happened. So if I backed you way up, what what made you like what happened in your life or what made you interested and passionate about this topic? Um, the person I respected invited me to dig a little further into exploring it. And that's my mentor, Dr. Jack Cornfield, who is a well-known psychologist and mindfulness teacher. And, <clears throat> you know, I trained with him um, and Tara Brock and, and other mindfulness teachers as part of my original exploration into 
well-being. I had been in therapy for decades. It wasn't really moving the needle. I had plenty of trauma and I was like, okay, well now I understand certain things, but I wasn't doing anything about it differently. And in the training with Jack, he just invited me because I'm Haitian and Dominican and Italian and American. So I'm multi-ethnic. I've always described myself as such. But I come to use the term because I think it's the most apt, like I'm sort of white adjacent, or at least I grew up that way because my mom is Italian American and I grew up with her side of the family here in Massachusetts, which is a small white town, small, you know, Italian people, my dad's side of the family, the Haitian and Dominican side is in Chicago, and we really weren't as connected and, and that kind of a thing. And so my lived experience, although always claiming my multi-ethnic heritage was not one of being, you know, immersed in black culture or even Hispanic culture. I was probably more affiliated with some Hispanic culture, to be honest, um, than anything uh, outside of Italian, definitely most, mostly Italian. But Jack invited me into this because part of the whole point of being a bodhisattva, part of being one who sort of has the, the intention um, for liberation for all and, and the well-being uh, and the liberation of oneself as part of the collective, meaning they're not two separate things. They're one, you know, sort of holistic and collective endeavor uh, was to, to look at certain things like climate change and the planet and, and what does this mean and, and or racism or, you know, the core wound uh, there or, you know, things like homophobia or, you know, different kinds of ableist, uh, you know, prejudices and, and the policies that support them. And so because of my unique social location and positionality, otherwise known as, you know, how I'm made up as a woman of middle age, of middle class, of, you know, multi-ethnicity, of master's degrees and Ivy League educations and all these kinds of things. What do I have access to? Where do I sit with the access of power and privilege? That's what I mean when I say social location. He invited me to kind of explore. <clears throat> and so, you know, we had received some lectures from Conda Mason and some other folks from East Bay Meditation Center in California about equity, power, how race plays out. What does it mean when people have access here or there? And I, 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 was, I was new in many ways to it, even though I had also experienced a lot of microaggressions and stuff in my lifetime as a multi-ethnic woman, mostly because I was fetishized a lot uh, as a woman and as sort of this, you know, whatever it is, the Jezebel trope or the spicy Latina trope or whatever you want to have, you, you know, whatever. And so I started to kind of take white awake classes, <clears throat> whiteawake.org, which was sort of a, a parallel organization that grew out of uh, Tarbox Insight Meditation uh, Center in DC, not grew out of it, but sort of next to it or, or side of it. Eleanor Hancock founded that with David Dean and she can talk more about how that is. And actually I've interviewed them both on my podcast, which is Rerooted, which we'll talk more about in a minute. But when I sort of took that class, it was called Before We Were White. And it was asking the question, who or what were we before we became quote unquote racialized or white into whiteness or in these categories? And I've always, like I said, said that I was multi-ethnic. So it was inviting people to say, well, if you're white, but you're German, what's your German heritage look like? Or your Scottish heritage look like? Or what's your, what's your intergenerational legacy or inheritance there? And 
when you learn about what happened in the highlands of Scotland in the 1400s and the doctrine of discovery and the ways in which basically the church is responsible for a lot of the policies that, you know, call manifest destiny. And, you know, you can basically just say everybody else is a savage and you're entitled to everything they have because it's in the name of God and, you know, all these crazy things. When you kind of begin to learn that this is part of what your inheritance might be or what it means to be an American to even be here on this soil and have inherited any of that from any of these structural policies that have been going on for centuries and even millennia before that, <clears throat> it was an awakening for me to say, oh, and then I took another class and I talked to, took Dr. Joy DeGruy's class, post-traumatic slave syndrome. And then I took another class and then I took another class and I read more books. And this was maybe six years ago now, maybe we're at 2021 now. So this is around 2015. And I had a really, bad period of like depression in a way because it was so horrifying because initially it was just oh yeah there's slavery or oh yeah there's you know discrimination or oh yeah there's Jim Crow laws or oh yeah there's a civil rights movement and oh it's Black History Month in February which is part of this this you know endeavor which is great but then I started like peeling back the layers of the onion and I was like holy fuck this is serious business um more so than I ever thought between chattel slavery, the transatlantic slave trade and settler colonialism and the ways in which the policies were just savage and enforced for um, you know, the dehumanization of many and the eradication of many and of the land itself for uh, access and power and wealth for a few. And we see it played out now. And so that was my invitation. Uh, I think if Jack hadn't invited me into that, there really wouldn't have been any I wouldn't have, if I weren't in that training, it wouldn't have been my thing. Black Lives Matter was starting. I remember I was on a date and somebody was talking about Black Lives Matter. And I said, Black Lives Matter, all lives matter. And we were at a bar and there was like outdoors in Brooklyn and there was a dog sitting next to us, a cute dog, like 101 Dalmatians dog. And I said, dogs lives matter, Dalmatians lives matter. And he was horrified. He was like this white guy who was like an MC, like he was a rapper. and. And I didn't really know how awful what I had just said was. It was all, you know, like I really, and, and so that just goes to show you how ignorant I was. And so I have a humble journey toward being more woke about this. I'm certainly not woke. I'm waking. I'm prejudiced AF still, um, as I think most of us are, but I'm more aware of it and, uh, and I'm working with it. So. I love it. So how do you feel towards this really passionate part that just spoke right then, just said so much, was so much passion? How do you feel towards that part? I mean, I guess sort of at this point, admiring a little bit, um, proud, admiring, not proud in the sense of like patting her on her back, but feeling like, yeah, it's hard, you know, but we're sort of doing this together, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and that we're sort of accepting the invitation, uh, knowing that to not accept it feels like it would be a dishonoring of what we're capable of. Like, you know, like it's, yeah. it's not, it's not really, we could say no or say, I don't feel like it or I don't want to. Or we could say, 
yeah, this is, this is hard, but we can do this. We can do this together with self-energy. We can do this with, you know, turn all those firefighters that used to go out and be crazy and drink and turn them into good energy and passion, as you say, toward something that potentially can be helpful for a good effort. Yeah. Cause I'm, I'm feeling like, right. You went into this, you know, you had years of therapy trauma and sort of nothing was really happening. And then you go to this mindfulness school, it sounds like, and then that opened up this whole av- avenue and it really sounds like it triggered this, a really passionate advocate part of you that is, as you speak, you can feel it. Like I can feel this amazing, really smart advocacy. Well, I hate being ignorant and thinking that I know what I'm talking about. Right. And we're all super ignorant about race. Yeah. And we all think we know what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to say more about that? Well, I know. I mean, just other than that, that I think it's, do we want to be enlightened, smarter, aware or not? Because if you don't want to be, that's okay. But at least know that that's the choice you're making. Because if you're going off of, unless you went to a super duper school or studied something very specifically, I pretty much would guarantee that whatever you think or know about this issue is, is just lacking in, yeah. in the whole picture. So is that part of why you started your podcast? No, I used to be a TV news anchor and reporter. So I was on broadcast news for 20 years and I spent time interviewing all the celebrities, going to all the parties, all the black tie things, all the fancy whatever, and doing live shots and sitting on the anchor desk, like signing off from Bloody Bloody. I'm Francesca Maxime with WBZ News, whatever, you know, that was me. And when I got arrested, literally arrested for not using my taillight, but really it was because I was drinking. Um, And I spent a night in jail back in 2014, 15, somewhere in there. That was sort of what pivoted me. I was like, eh, this is the campaign. You know, I'm at PBS NewsHour. They're covering the tweeter, came to be the tweeter in chief. You know, I don't really get this. Um, I don't know that I want to do this anymore. I'm not happy in this career. And I went on sabbatical and because of my privilege and all those things, I, you know, I walked away, meaning that I, I, I got an attorney and I don't have conviction on stuff like that. But I say this to say that I had done journalism for so long that I missed journalism. So I was on my healing journey, doing my somatic experiencing, receiving it, hadn't yet trained in it, starting to do my training in mindfulness meditation, and then started my training in somatic experiencing and internal family systems and other stuff later um, that I missed as I was learning all these interesting things about mindfulness and about nervous system regulation and about polyvagal theory and about attachment theory and about parts and about all this stuff about, oh, there's a reason why. There's nothing wrong with me. The sense of worthlessness or not deservingness or shame or all this other crap, which is bullshit. I mean, it's real, just like race is bullshit, but it's also real. Racism is real anyway. Race isn't. But that, that, that I said, I still wanted to ask people questions and I still had curiosity. And so I started to do what I did when I was a journalist. And I started just picking up the phone or emailing people and saying, I want to ask you about the book that I read. And I want to ask you about this or that. And that's how I met Dick Schwartz. And um, 
it was great. And now, you know, he's just continuing to open up more and more to this as are people like Jack and as are other people that I've talked to about this issue. So Rerooted, the podcast came after my initial foray. It was called Wise Girl initially because it was um, just something I did in my living room. And uh, I did it for about a year, year and a half. And I had been a guest on a couple of other podcasts for the Be Here Now Network, which is a Ram Dass podcast network. He passed away last year, but actually two years ago now, but just over a year ago. And um, they liked my podcast that were guest podcasts that I had offered them. And they asked me if I wanted to kind of put rerouted out or put out a new sort of moniker. And that's how I, I did it. So it was just a natural curiosity. And again, back to Jack, I said, you know, I miss, I want to ask people questions. He's like, well, don't worry about that. He was like, you don't worry if you have five people or 50 people on your YouTube page, just do it if that's what you want to do. And because I trust him again, you know, borrowing the self energy, it's like direct access when, you know, Dick will talk to somebody's like part directly. Um, it was almost like that way with Jack sort of saying like, you know, no, go ahead. And, you know, I have the faith in you or I have the faith in your, in, you know, your intention. And so then I went off with it. And now I guess people listen and watch and it's great. Um, so did you get trained in IFS? It sounds like you've gotten a lot of different training. So tell me about that. So yes and no, I've had, I mean, I have to say now it's probably different since it's COVID and everything's online and it may actually be a lot easier, but the process of trying to get into an IFS training from New York is kind of like, you might as well sell your firstborn child or something. It's kind of challenging, or at least it was, uh, I tried multiple times and it's nothing against the Institute or anything like that. It's a popular model that people want to be trained in. So what I did do was I read all the books and I took the circles and I did the, you know, second circle thing, whatever it's called. And, you know, I did all the Frank Anderson classes and I did all of the, you know, I did, um, you know, I did all of the adjacent work and, and I've talked to Dick enough. I feel like I understand the model pretty well and use it quite regularly, even though I'm not formally an IFS therapist. Got it. Okay. And so besides the podcast, what, it sounds like you still do, do coaching and do mindfulness because you, you do a lot of different things. So do you want to talk a little bit about like all the different things that you do? Cause you've, you've said a whole bunch of stuff in the past, you know, 15 minutes. And so if I slowed you down a little bit, sort of, do you want to tell everybody like what, like what you're doing now besides the, po- so you do the podcast and then like, what else, what else? Cause are you doing mindfulness? Are you doing <laughs> so like somatic stuff? Like what's, what's your, well, I mean, I think that's right part now? of the violence of the Western world. I try to help people get back in touch with their original nature, whatever that is, you would call it okay. self energy. So whatever it is that's in between their self energy and whatever is like out there on the mm-hmm. outside, that's the goal. And whatever helps get there, it doesn't really matter. Gotcha. I have a bunch of different things that have taught me a few different tools. I don't, I'm, I'm, you know, I call myself an eclectic Buddhist or an eclectic, you know, whatever. I mean, I'm certified in indigenous focusing oriented therapy, focusing oriented therapy, relational life therapy by Terry, Terry Real for couples, brain spotting, you know, uh, you know, one and two different, just different modalities, but none of, they're all the same. The bottom line is it doesn't matter. They're all the same. Mostly they deal with recovering the part of you that's stuck in a pattern that was 
physiologically adaptively necessary when you are a kid to survive in order to get through your environment that you carry forward that through IFS you unburden through using the present day non-traumatized self-energy to accompany the part that is feeling like it needs to still do that thing that way and let it have a little bit more freedom in air so it can go off and create and do and have post-traumatic growth as opposed to be stuck in uh, doing it the way that it used to have to do it. Yeah. So um, do you feel like you've gotten what you needed personally? Like when you left broadcasting and started on this journey and clearly you love learning and have learned a lot of different things. Do you feel like you've gotten what you've needed personally during this whole time of like personal development for yourself? Well, the only reason why I started taking all these certifications is because I'm like, well, if I'm going to like receive this, I might as well learn how to do this because it's going to cost the same in the end anyway. Um, And so I went to school, I became a licensed psychotherapist, I did that song and dance, which I think is crap anyway, um, because it's just part of whiteness and the academy and all kinds of criteria about who gets to be gatekeepers and why and why not. And none of it has to do with real healing. You can talk about evidence based stuff and all of that. But I know I'm very opinionated about that, but you know, it is really kind of how I feel. I mean, even social work, which I am, is a field that's based on white saviorism, which is not particularly helpful. Um, There's a real difference between being an embodied ally or an embodied co-conspirator and being, you know, sort of shame-based and feeling like I have something to offer you that you didn't even ask for. But that's my sidebar. Um, well, that's part of white supremacy culture, though, right? Mm-hmm. Sort of like the white social worker, I'm going to come in and help you with what I think you need. Right. As opposed to really just sitting there and like having distress tolerance for the fact that, wow, I have like an inheritance of moral injury over unaware white privilege and entitlement that I carry that in my silence, I have no recognition of does harm on its own. The problem is we're, we're all kind of breathing carbon monoxide, which is racism and think that we're breathing oxygen. And it does sicken over time. It, it necessarily does. And so that's why you asked some of the other stuff I'm doing. I mean, I did a keynote with Dick actually in Gabor Mate and Bessel van der Kolk and Janina Fisher and stuff were there last week for the US Journal Training Trauma and Addiction Conference last week to talk about embodied anti-racism and mindfulness. I'm doing a talk tomorrow for Ackerman on cultural somatics. And that's really Resma Manicum's work, who many people are familiar with in terms of somatic abolitionism. And really we're talking about like the way in which a cultural body like the United States has insecure avoidant attachment and what it what it means to have a whole cultural body that is stuck in that kind of aversion and doesn't know how to get out of it because it would have to actually meet the fact that it would go through a grief remorse, uh, you know, period that it doesn't know how to, doesn't know how to keep company. Um, So how do we build up? I know, you know, Dick wants to do that. Like, how do we do, how do we generate enough self-energy that we can meet the need to process some of the unburdening that needs to happen collectively with the white body, if you will. Um, And yeah, I teach a couple of mindfulness things. I just taught a a big embodied anti-racism class um, in the fall with Therapy Wisdom. I may be teaching 
a free webinar soon with Terry Real Relational Life Therapy on how that model supports embodied anti-racism work by its sort of grid of narcissism and shame and avoidance and walled off versus boundarylessness. And I think it's a really great model to help explain to people in real terms how they can have applied embodied anti-racism. So I do a lot of teaching in addition to seeing a lot of clients and couples. So can you talk a little bit about, like for the listener, can you talk about like embodied um, embodied racism and what they can do or how they can begin to explore that for themselves? Well, they may already be embodied racists. Well, right. That's what I, right, exactly. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't think I said or, that right. <laughs> it's okay. I mean, I, you know, let's face it. I, I, I think we're all kind of uh, guilty of some of that. Um, colorism is one of the ways in which that shows up for, uh, especially for communities of, of color who, that are, you know, on the spectrum of, of people of color. Um, meaning that if you're, if you're, Hispanic, you may have heard of something called blanquimiento uh, or mejorar la raza, which is to better the race or to make more white, which means that, you know, don't go out with the black girl or the, you know, Afro-Latino or the Afro-Latina, like make sure you go out with the one who's white or lighter skinned because your babies will be more beautiful. And that's a whole thing that is seeped into Hispanic culture also. And I think that's kind of why folks were like calling out Ava Longoria and stuff. Um, not precisely, but like, you know, and she did a pretty good mea culpa when she walked it back. Um, for those of you who don't know, this was just a little kerfuffle before the election uh, where she was saying, you know, it wouldn't be for Latin women, you know, we wouldn't have done anything in, in, in the election because now we have Biden with 46 as opposed to 45. And people were like, Stacey Abrams and her contingent and the indigenous people out in the Southwest that that really were, were um, were the ones who kind of came through. But anyway, I don't want to get sidetracked. The point is that this idea of um, of colorism is, is a real thing so that there's a lot of uh, prejudice even within communities of color around uh, internalized colonialism, internalized racism, and also um, how do I get more aligned to you know, power. And the question is, is when you hear people talk about abolitionism, what they're talking about is this system is broken. It stank from the beginning. We need to create a new way of thinking and a new system. You have other people talk about, you know, working within the system and say, well, you know, we need to be able to move, move up within it. And there are old tropes there, whether it's your uncle Tom or your house, you know, I won't use the N word word versus the field hand versus the ones who are the overseers and things like that. I mean, this goes back to plantations and stuff. So when we're looking at the framework for how are we going to change society, the question is, are we going to work within the structures that we have and the policies that we have, or are we going to be creative and envision something entirely new? And I think that, you know, that's kind of where we're at right now, where people are toying with that. And there's both movements happening. Yeah, yeah. So what can people do um, as sort of this, this movement is happening, sort of this bigger, larger than us is happening, but what could they do personally? 
Well, I mean, I can speak for my own self, which is I started with taking classes online and reading books and being horrified and feeling overwhelmed and then taking myself in more positive regard and letting myself know that I was big enough and strong enough to not go down the sinkhole and that I had privilege to feel bad as opposed to getting denied housing or not having food or, you know, that that all was part of it and that it was then again, to use my mentor, Jack Cornfield's term, accepting your assignment, accepting your assignment when you have privilege, when you have, you know, like this isn't optional. Resma Menicum says it's about growing up. And, you know, it's so funny. I, 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 I've come down hard on shame since I don't feel like it's like the thing that, you know, has me in a chokehold anymore. And, and I've kind of come to sort of say it's so narcissistic it's such a waste of energy you know it's it's so it's so interesting that like once you realize that there's nothing wrong with you everything is about how you were programmed if you have a laptop and it has pages on it as opposed to word it's going to run pages it's not going to run word if you download word it'll run word so you need to download the program that you want if words funky and glitchy and you see the little red button on your laptop, it means it's time to update and you have to download the upgrade. And so there's nothing wrong with the laptop. It just needs to have a malware scan and get updated. And that's adulting and that's growing up. And I think that what people can do is read the books, take the classes, find their racial affinity groups. So if you're white, hang out with other white people, use Ruth King's mindful of race book and she has a new online program where people who are white bodied or black bodied or hispanic bodied or korean bodied or whatever to get together and it's like a book club but not a book club where once a month you spend a couple of hours talking about race with each other it would be like a peer consultation group for therapists but it's not it's for lay people and you talk about these issues and you get real with one another about this core wound that's a cancer in our society and frankly in our world. And mind you, it's about power and it's about wealth. And at the end of the day, it's, it's sort of like, we can talk all we want. We can think that we're nice, liberal-minded, caregiving people. But really, how tolerant are we of our own direct experience and how uncomfortable are we willing to be around issues that we feel bad about and know we may be not, you know, we don't, I don't know anybody who's a direct descendant of a plantation owner, although not in my awareness anyway, maybe I do because I used to live in Pensacola, Florida. So probably some of the folks down there were, but we maybe didn't do some of that. However, we are now living in the world created by that. So we do have a responsibility. Right. We have the privilege of that, right? Like you're saying, like we have the privilege of, of some of us do have the privilege of growing up that way on yeah. that land, on that land and in that, the context of that. Read the books, get educated, listen, be, be humble. Don't confuse your shame and humility. Like, you know, a lot of people are like, well, I can't speak or I won't speak or I need to let someone else have the floor. Bullshit. You need to be able to know when to listen and when to be attentive and when to give someone the space and when you need to stand up, when you need to be an ally and be strong. I call it an elegant ferocity, an elegant ferocity. I love it. I love it. 
Um, do you want to say anything else about colorism? I mean, I think you hit that pretty hard. Is there anything else that you feel like you um, want the listeners to know or anything else? Um, anything else you want to say? Um, I mean, the beautiful thing about IFS is, is that, and mindfulness, and you're just making space for all of it. Nothing's out of bounds. You know, uh, Dick calls them sacred little beings. All parts are welcome. You're just, you know, it's, it's just that. You aren't that little one that's gripped with a racist or prejudicial belief, but you do have a racist part. That's okay. Make space for it. Yeah. How'd you come to believe that? Why are you there? What are you here to protect me from? What are you here to try to get from me? What are you afraid of? That's our inquiry to have enough distance and enough care and compassion for the recognition that like, no, you were programmed, babe. I get it. Don't worry. It's all right. I'm here with you. We're here to try to undo some of this stuff because it's not fun for you or anybody for that matter. And that we get to do a million times a day until we die. And then somebody else hopefully gets to do it because they watched us do it. Mm -hmm. And then maybe over time, there'll be fewer of the ones that are directed toward the place of doing the thing that might be so, you know, frenetic and, you know, trying to like do the wonky workarounds. And maybe we can kind of, you know, untie more of the knots over time. Mm, I love it. That was beautiful. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a journey. I mean, you know, we're all on a journey. I mean, I don't know anything. I'm a student, you know? Um, it's hard. It's hard for me to hear you say that after our, you just said all you did for the past half hour. It's really hard for me to hear you say, you don't know anything. I'm like, well, you just told me a lot. <laughs> That you I, know. I hope I hope I invited people to be curious about their own direct experience and about what and, and and invite them into a question around are they sure? Is that so? Can we be curious as opposed to just have our assumptions? We know our fight, flight, freeze response is in effect. When we're crossing the street, we want to make sure that when we hear the bus whizzing by, we don't go walk in front of it. We jerk back. I get that. No problem. And we're not always about to get hit by a bus. So when we have time to pause, when we have time to reflect, when we have that moment to kind of say, am I sure? Is that so? I wonder if I could get more curious about that. Can we hold ourselves in warm compassion, same as no better or worse than anyone else or any other being for that matter, and open with curiosity to what is our real direct experience? Is my body getting tight or hot? And then there's a thought about someone or something. And then that might lead to some behavior from a part that gets all jacked up that takes over. And can I remind it that myself is right here with it? And then I can make a discerning, compassionate action. So it's the whole thing about being responsive and not reactive. And I think if we can culturally move toward that, then we'll be in a much better place to be able to tackle all the kinds of challenges that we have in ourselves and with one another. Really beautiful. Um, that was really beautiful. Thank you so much. The last question I always ask people is if you weren't doing all the millions of things that you're doing and you had to, you had to do something different, what would you do differently? 
Oy. Um, I don't know. I feel like I've done like, I'm beat. I mean, like I, I, I've lived in 13, 12, you know, I've moved a dozen times. I've done the TV thing. I've, I feel like I've seen it and done it. I don't know. Probably just be a beach bum reading books, maybe cooking dinners. I love entertaining. I love being creative and like decorating houses and, you know, things and, um, I'm a poet, so I write poetry and I'd probably be able to spend some more time, you know, with that. Um, and really probably just spend more time in nature, which is often the inspiration for my poetry. And yeah, I don't know, those things, those kinds of things, nothing too crazy, you know? That sounds nice though. Yeah, yeah, nothing too crazy. I'm at that midpoint in life, hopefully midpoint if I'm lucky where um, for me, uh, although I have my anxious preoccupied attachment and I still like to buy five pairs of shoes in the same color, I, uh, I do feel Wait, like do less you really is do more. That? Often, do you really yeah. Do that? Oh yeah, it's been, it's been a thing since I was a kid. Maybe not five, maybe we're down to like two or three, but yeah. Because do you know why? Uh, yeah, because like I have a part that wants to make sure that I fit in and that I look okay and that I'm acceptable and that I feel, you know, like I have all of my ducks in a row. So it's one less thing about me that other people can criticize or whatever, and that I can feel good about and it can be an expression of my creativity. So it's both a defense and a celebration of my, you know, fun, funky way of dressing or something. So it's not all bad. I'm aware well, of it. I could see that if you buy one like really cute, expensive shoe, like, yes, do it, fit in, look amazing. But why buy three or four or five of the same one? Because you want red and black and the lizard stripe and the, you know, I mean, come on, you have to, if it fits, I'm a, if, if it fits it, you must have quit. No, if it fits and it doesn't give you blisters and it doesn't, you know, it's then, so cute. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's just it's been a thing. I mean, I never grew up in a family where like we went to the store and spent the hundred dollars on the one thing. It was always like we go to this dollar store and we spend the, you know, twenty dollars on the yellow sneakers, not the white ones, you know, like. And so for me, it's always been a thing of kind of working back around to say, actually, you could just buy the one pair of three hundred dollar sneakers and just with be with the one pair of those if that's what you really wanted to do um but I still don't do that I still shop at TJ Maxx and you know do all of that so I have the parts that still you know I don't drink anymore but put me in front of some bagels or you know send me off in TJ Maxx and I'm still working with those TJ Maxx so you can get some good stuff like some know. You know, name branded discount <laughs> I know I'm just saying I I, I admit I, I am weak in certain settings, I admit. <laughs> it's all right, though. I don't, it doesn't bug me so much. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, we have to, I mean, come on, we have to have some release. Yes, yes, that's true. Like my expandable pants that have been, <laughs> that I have been buying in COVID. <laughs> the quarantine 15, that's, that's some real stuff. The problem. Yeah, yeah. it's mm -hmm. all right. It's yeah. all right. I have compassion for my parts there. <laughs> good <laughs> well and if you have these cute shoes then that's right nobody's yeah. gonna notice yeah no, exactly kind of issues. the art mm -hmm. of distraction mm -hmm. you know we know it what works. we're talking about mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so um so 
I will point people towards your website. And then is there anything else you want me to point them towards? And I'll, this will be published, I think next week. Yeah. Not this Great. week, but next week. So pretty soon. Um, cool. Um, no, I mean, the, the website's Maxime Clarity, M-A-X-I-M-E is my last name. Clarity, like clear seeing, hopefully. Um, and on there you can book consultations or if you're a counselor and you wanna do a peer-to-peer -peer case consultation, I do a lot of work with interracial couples or interreligious couples. Uh, sometimes I have consultations about that or even just about trauma or about racialized trauma in general and those kinds of things, or just a regular session, like a one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and then I have like usually my events and stuff that are up there too. And I guess the podcast is rerouted. It's on Ram Dass's Be Here Now Network. And some of my recent guests have included people like Janet Helms. She talked about uh, the summary stages of racial identity development, which is really important to kind of realize where am I in my wokeness? You know, like, am I in the ignorant stage? Am I in the defensive stage? Am I in the stage of, oh, you know, I, I actually am more enlightened now. And I realize that I'm kind of wonky here and, you know, I'm still growing and learning. Um, anyway, the, the podcast is on the Be Here Now Network. And so if anybody wants to reach out to me, they're more than welcome to uh, through the website. That's awesome. So um, I was thinking about that. Like, would, is there a book or two that you would recommend, especially this um, that is really noticing our own uh, privilege and our own like being curious about that like is there any books that you would recommend if people are interested in like yeah I think I'm you know I want to know I want to know where I'm at on this um well Janet Helms's work is a little bit more academic but you can listen to the podcast that we did together on rerouted and um Resma Menicum's podcast uh with me if you want and I've interviewed a lot of folks including Dick about racialized trauma and uh he was actually a guest in my class Dick Schwartz on the therapy wisdom class which you can still buy uh on therapywisdom.com even though we offered it in the fall of 2020 and it's now January of 2021 it's still pretty relevant because we were just coming off of the summer of 2020 and the uprising. Uh, and you can just watch it as a recorded thing as opposed to participate in the live calls. Um, the books, I guess you could say Resma's book, My Grandmother's Hands has been a New York Times bestseller for a while. A lot of people like Ibram Kendi, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Uh, I like Dr. Joy DeGru, Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. Um, you can talk about Isabel Wilkerson's cast, C-A-S-T-E, where she makes some parallels between the caste system in India and how race has served to become or make us be a society in which we had divisions based on 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 caste uh, structure based on race. Um, Judy Ride wrote a book, a couple of books, Judy Ride, R-Y-D-E, which I like, and I forget the exact title, but she's a clinician in the UK and she's written a couple of books of like how to deal with certain things and, you know, for helping professionals or white people in the helping professions or something like that. I forget, but she really has some really great insights and models there. And then also an indigenous people's history of the United States, uh, which I think is really wonderful. And that's by Dr. Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz. And I believe it won the American book award in 2015. And uh, I just interviewed her yesterday actually for a podcast, which should be coming out in a couple of weeks. So those are some of the ones that I think might give you a good basis of kind of what we're talking about and uh, give yourself room and space to kind of absorb it because they're heavy. They're not light beach reading, but at the same time, in a way, 
we're carrying around all the baggage anyway. That's the whole point of unburdening. So let's just kind of like not try to shove it under the bed and have it fester and get like moldy pizza under there. Like let's start to just clean our room. I love it. Well, thank you so much. This was great. It was really good to talk to you and see you and meet you in person. Yeah, I know. Our virtual in-person visits. It's yeah. true. It's it's the crazy COVID world, but um, it won't be like this forever anyway. Everything no. changes. So yeah. thanks, yeah. Tammy, for the opportunity. And thanks, everybody, for listening and watching. Thank you so much. All right. Take care.